came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, radio waves, astrophys brings the news, arrays and dishes give different views, are you confused? Radio waves, radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, she sees radio waves. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien and today is Thursday the 21st of February 2019. Each fortnight we speak with a special guest in the fields of radio astronomy, optical astronomy, space science or particle physics. And today we are speaking with Dr Sherry Breen who holds a research fellowship at the Sydney Institute for Astronomy at the University of Sydney in Australia and she's going to explain to us how you can use mazes to understand star formation. And that's followed by Dr Ian Astroblog Musgrave, who is a university toxicology and pharmacology lecturer, an amateur astronomer and astrophotographer, and he's going to tell us what's up, Doc. What's up in the night, morning and evening skies for the next two weeks? And he takes us on an astronomical tangent. And we'll finish up as usual with our Astrophys News Highlights from this golden age of astronomy, space science and astrophysics. So without further ado, we cross straight to Sydney to speak with Sherry. Hello, Sherry. Hi, Brendan. Today we are speaking with Dr. Sherry Breen, who holds a research fellowship at the Sydney Institute for Astronomy at the University of Sydney. She's been awarded the prestigious Bolton Fellowship and has worked on some of the world's and Australia's most powerful instruments, including the Parkes Dish and the ATCA up at Narrabri. In 2015, she was named a L'Oreal UNESCO for Women in Science Fellow for her work on understanding how the largest stars in our galaxy are formed. Welcome. Thank you. It's great to be talking to you today. So before you tell us about your amazing research, can you tell us where you grew up, please, Sherry? And tell us how you became interested in science and space in the first place, and did you have dark skies in your backyard? Sure. So I grew up on a farm in country Tasmania. Um, I was always really interested in maths and science at school, but I didn't really have a special interest in space, despite the fact that we had access to fantastically dark skies in Tasmania. Um, I was probably always going to be a scientist of some kind, but it wasn't until I went to university that I really became interested in that science being astronomy. So I started out at uni doing maths and physics and chemistry, and then later began using the university's 26-metre radio telescope to do projects. I do remember fondly, though, a few times in Tasmania 
having opportunities to see things in the skies that you probably wouldn't in other parts of Australia, particularly the aurora australis was much more prominent for viewing in Tasmania than around more northern parts of Australia. Fantastic. Okay. Now, before we go on to your undergraduate and your honours and your PhD, tell us a little bit about those school days and your early ambitions and did those ambitions change? As a kid, I was pretty academically driven, but not overly nerdy. I did well at school, but once my work was done, I didn't really seek out any extra work uh, back in those days. I don't have any clear memories of having a strong desire to be anything in particular, only uh, that it was likely to have something to do with maths and science. Um, I grew up in a family where my mum has a science degree and my dad's a civil engineer, so it wasn't really difficult for me to imagine the sorts of careers in maths and science that some other people might. It wasn't until I got serious about thinking what I was going to apply for at university uh, that I settled on a Bachelor of Science as my first option, which is what I ended up doing. Fantastic. Thanks, Sherry. Now, your first undergraduate degree was followed by an honours project using the University of Tasmania's Mount Pleasant 26-metre radio telescope, which I'm going to visit in a month or so to search for water mazes. And looking at some of your subsequent papers, you also look at methanol mazes. Can you tell us what water and methanol mazes are, please? Sure. MASER is actually an acronym for Microwave Amplification by Stimulated Emission of Radiation. Might sound quite difficult, but really they're just the radio analogue of lasers that most people will have an idea about. Yep. But in that case, of course, the L for laser just stands for light. Just as lasers come in different colours, you can also have mazes of different colours. Wow. So that's a reflection of the frequency of the emission that we see. So the mazes that I study form naturally in the vicinity of young stars. So the methanol or water in those cases, their molecules are pumped uh, to an energised state, which might either be caused by shocks or infrared energy, for example, and then in the right conditions, they'll jump back down to the lower energy state where they want to be releasing emission all at the same wavelength, resulting in what we see, which is a very bright spectral line. Beautiful. And then your PhD is on using mazes to trace the evolution of high mass stars. Can you tell us how you use the mazes to identify where the stars are forming and also perhaps a little something about the conditions that are there. Yeah, so one of the biggest problems we have in studying young high-mass stars is actually finding them. So young high-mass stars are born in these dense cocoons of material, predominantly dust, which obscures them from our view at optical wavelength, which is what we commonly use in astronomy, of course. But because mazes arise at radio wavelengths, which are longer than optical wavelengths, they're able to penetrate the dust grains that are enshrouding these young stars. So mazes also have a number of other advantages when looking at star formation regions. They're relatively common and bright, which makes them fairly simple to detect with our radio telescope. They also come in different types or colours, as we discussed just before, yep. like the water and methanol mazes. We know from theory that these kinds of mazes need slightly different sets of conditions to exist. So the basis for my PhD project was actually that these conditions were likely to change as the high mass star formation region was evolving. 
So you could basically use the kinds of mazes that you saw to date the young star that you were looking at, sort of placing them on an evolutionary timeline. That's so cool. Fantastic. Now, recently we spoke with Dr. Jamie Stevens up at the ATCA at Narrabri, and he told us that you were doing a fabulous legacy survey using the ATCA. Can you tell us what that survey involves? Is it whole sky, for example? How long does it run for? And what sort of conditions do you need to conduct that survey? And before we talk broadly about legacy surveys, can you also tell us what science you'll be doing with this particular survey? Sure. So I'm leading a large legacy survey on the compact array, which is called Starfish, Star Formation in the Southern Hemisphere. It's a strange example of an acronym that actually works. Yeah. And we're mapping about one quarter of our galaxy in a host of star formation traces. Yep. So that includes things like methanol mazes, which we've already talked about, but also silicon monoxide mazes, as well as traces of the molecular gas content of our galaxy. So in particular, we look at the dense gas tracer CS, carbon monosulfide, um, traces of shocked gas as well. So we know that the stars will form from this dense gas, so it's really important to map it out over a large region of the galaxy when we're trying to work out how these stars form. So the survey itself will run for up to five years. Wow. That's actually sort of dependent on Jamie Stevens. He schedules the telescope, so the more time he gives me, the quicker I can do it. Yep. We need about 3,000 hours of decent weather telescope time to map our entire survey region. So people often think as radio astronomy is something that can be done in all weather conditions. Often people feel like optical is the only thing you need a clear sky for. But in fact, for us, because we're at quite a high radio frequency at seven millimetres wavelength, so about 44 gigahertz, yep. bad weather really affects us. So it increases the system temperature, which makes our data more noisy, yep. but also attenuates the weak signals from space that we're looking for. So we hit doubly hard in poor weather conditions. So you've chosen a particularly difficult area to look in. That's beautiful. Now... Where is your legacy survey data stored and who will access this and why are legacy surveys so important for the work of future astronomers? Our data is currently stored by CSIRO who runs the Australia Telescope National Facility, which the Compact Array is part of. Yep. But it's also stored on a palsy service, a cloud service, but we're quickly running out of space, so we're going to have to think of a clever solution for that soon. I think we're at about 25 terabytes of data now. The people who can access our data at the moment is actually few people. It's only those of us who are working hard on the data at the moment, trying to get it to look as beautiful as possible. But very soon, our data will be released to the entire international astronomy community. And when I say data, actually, I mean the data products. So the, the beautiful looking maps, anyone can actually currently download our, our raw data yep. and reduce it themselves. Yep. Fantastic. Now, this is a beautiful segue because one of the themes that we've talked about many times on this show is the issue of big data. And as we move into more powerful instruments producing increasing amounts of data, 
What is your take on the most effective strategies to extract the best science from these increasingly huge oceans of data? Yeah, so I'm an observational astronomer, so I have lots of skills in observing the technical details of telescopes and data reduction. I think that in the future, though, uh, the astronomers coming through are more likely to forgo those types of experiences and skills for things like programming, machine learning and statistics. So we're always already seeing a bit of a shift in this. Data science centres are popping up and starting to change the landscape of astronomy. So I think it's, it's just going to be a shift um, of skill sets to be able to extract data and results easily from these wonderfully huge data sets. Beautiful. Now, before we move back to some more personal topics, what are some of the other research areas that you're working on at the moment? And we understand that some discussion may be embargoed because of upcoming journal publications, but what can you tell us about your current research? So aside from trying to understand how stars form, there are a couple of other things that we can use the legacy survey data to try and understand. Um, one of those things is actually the structure of our own galaxy. So it's actually very difficult for us to know what our own galaxy looks like because we're located within it. We yep. can't take a clear picture of it. So we will use our CS data mapping the dense gas of our galaxy um, to actually get a much clearer picture of the spiral arm structure of yep. our galaxy. Another thing that we will do as a byproduct of our legacy survey is that we actually are detecting lots and lots of evolved stars associated with SAO mazes. So SAO mazes can be detected towards star formation regions, which is what we were going for, but really what we've detected is a whole heap towards SAO mazes. I'm sorry, towards evolved stars. Yep. And there's never been an untargeted large survey uh, for these kinds of sources. So we're learning to love our SIO mazes and evolved stars, um, and hopefully we'll be able to shed some light on what's going on with those older stars as well. Uh, something to look out for. Now, the mic is all yours now, Sherry, and we have the opportunity for you to give us your favourite rant or rave about the challenges we face in science, in science funding, in education, equity, diversity workplace flexibility policies, outreach, our quest for knowledge or space. The mic's all yours. <laughs> I think I could probably rant to any number of those <laughs> things. Let's go for equity and diversity, though, I guess. I think astronomy has obviously been in the spotlight around equity, diversity in the workplace, and that's been a really good thing, I think, for astronomy to, to put a light on these issues and there are a lot of people working really hard to make sure that we do better as astronomers and also we are trying very hard too to encourage lots of young girls into astronomy so I think not so much a rant but I'd like to just point out that as astronomers we are trying very hard to increase the equity and diversity within our field. Yes and I've been watching that too. There has been some success and there's also a way to go. So thank you very much for that. Now, is there anything else that we should watch out for in the near future? What are you keeping your eye on apart from your own research? Right. So, I mean, there, I'll do two things. What's coming up for us on the horizon 
is a telescope called the Australia SKA Pathfinder in Western Australia, which I'm sure you've heard about. Yep. <laughs> we are about to embark on a very large survey on that instrument as soon as it's ready for us called GASCAP. That will map out the lower density gas, which will complement the higher density gas of our legacy survey really well. And also detect lots and lots of OH mazes, which will also complement the kinds of mazes that we're detecting in the legacy survey. But as an astronomer at the moment, um, I don't think that you can really go past fast radio bursts. Yes. Um, they're getting <laughs> a lot of attention right now. And, and I think will be, you know, the, the field to watch in the near future. Indeed. Uh, mainstream media is having fun talking about aliens, but I'm not hearing many astronomers talking about aliens at this stage. Yeah, no, I think astronomers are staying well away from the alien explanation. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Sherry Breen. On behalf of our listeners, it's been really fabulous speaking with you. Thank you. No worries at all. Thank you. Bye. See ya. And now we cross over to Adelaide to speak to Ian Astroblog Musgrave. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. How's it going? Very good, thanks, Ian. It's good to hear your mellifluous tones again. Thank you very much. It's good to hear your resonating tones as well. <laughs> Very good. Well, it's been an interesting couple of weeks with poor old opportunity. It has been indeed. Not only finally saved by the opportunity, but we also got exciting images from MU69. Yes. And as well as some preliminary images of the landing site for Hayabusa 2 and some memories of the hopping robots that are currently on Nauru as well as some more mapping studies of asteroid Benno. Yes, and we've also got the exploration happening on the far side of the moon. So lots of interesting things have been happening up in the sky. Yes, and here we were thinking a couple of years ago that we might just do the history of radio astronomy and that would be it, Ian. It looks like there's so much material coming in. We're going to be at this for some time. Just looking at the history of radio astronomy, there's so much more that's been coming out with the new ways of looking at radio astronomy data. I think even if we considered radio astronomy itself, that's been expanding and developing in such a way that we'll have lots and lots of things to look at in the years to come. Yes, and there's lots of interesting optical instruments coming online over the next couple of years. Well, Ian, can you tell us? What's up in the sky for the next two weeks? Well, very little in the evening, unfortunately. Most of the interesting objects are in the morning sky. Mars, of course, is still with us, but now it's a dim glow just above the western horizon after astronomical twilight. It's still nice to see in the horizon, but it's now sufficiently low in the horizon that uh, telescopic views are uh, not particularly exciting, and it's also so far past opposition that its disk is small and not much to be seen. So Mars is very nice to look at in the evening sky, but it's not particularly exciting in terms of binocular or astronomical telescopic observation. If you're going to wait around until March the 11th, 
the thin crescent moon and Mars will be close together, and that will be something nice in the early evening sky. The other thing that's in the evening sky, a trace difficult at the moment, is Comet C2018 Y1 I1 Moto. Yep. That's been looking very nice quite recently. However, the moon is now a bit too close to it for any good observation. But there have been reports coming through that it's at least magnitude 6, and uh, there's been at least one Australian report of an unaided eye observation from a dark sky site. Unfortunately, the next few nights or so, it's just too close to the moon for good observation. But once we get past the 20th, we should be able to see it before the moon rises and get some good views. But there's some nice telescopic views of it showing two tails, possibly an iron tail and a dust tail, but it should be observable in good binoculars and even modest telescopes. Now, at the moment, by the time this goes out, it will be just under Gemini, and then moving through Arugia, below Taurus, and then into Perseus. So for Australians, it's okay for about another week or so. For the people in the Northern Hemisphere, it's now moving into quite decent territory where it's getting quite high above the horizon and should be visible in binoculars uh, for at least a week and in uh, decent telescopes, uh, decent amateur telescopes for at least a week after that. It's gone past most of the really exciting territory, but it will pass through the Milky Way from about the 25th, so it'll be uh, worthwhile um, investigating that area. Excellent. That's the evening sky. Of course, in the evening sky, we've got all beautiful summer constellations for us in the um, southern hemisphere. Of course, in the northern hemisphere, they're the winter constellations. Um, they're not going to be too exciting uh, until uh, about the second uh, second uh, week after this forecast because of the interference of the moon. But it'd still be nice to step out and see the uh, Orion, the Hunter, uh, Taurus, the Bull, and the uh, Canis Major from all of us in the northern and southern hemispheres. Very good, Ian. And what about in the mornings? In the morning, Jupiter is getting higher and higher. In fact, by the um, uh, end of the second week after this forecast goes out, Jupiter is rising almost at midnight. So uh, it's soon to enter the, the evening skies proper. So if you uh, are looking in the morning skies, yeah, you'll be able to see three bright planets, Jupiter very high in the morning sky, followed by the pair of Saturn and Jupiter. Venus is no longer in the brightest part of the Milky Way. It's uh, not near anything exciting at the moment, but it, it will be still interesting to watch. We're going to have another moon ladder uh, shortly. On the 28th of February, Jupiter and the thin crescent waning moon close, and that will look quite nice. Then on March the 2nd, Saturn and the crescent moon are just a mere finger width apart, in fact, they're slightly less than a finger width. They'll fit quite nicely into a binocular field, and they'll also fit into a, a wide-angle telescope field. So you won't be able to see too much detail in Saturn. You'll see it will be a definite oval, but it will be still nice to be able to get at least the edge of, of the moon and its craters and the uh, and the oval shape of Saturn into the same field and will make very nice. If you're into making mosaics, the uh, next month we're going to see an occultation of Saturn by the Moon from the eastern states of Australia. So for those eastern Australians who are listening, look out for that. 
Everywhere else we'll see uh, the Moon and Saturn relatively close. And then on March the 3rd, the Moon and Venus are close again. This will look very nice in the evening. So there's lots to look at in the morning sky. Mercury will return to the morning sky in the next month. And it will be the best time to see Mercury in the morning sky. So we'll go back to having three bright planets in the morning. <laughs> so if you time it just right, you should be able to see Jupiter over the western horizon, Saturn high above the northeastern horizon, then Venus, then Mercury. Uh, we're going to see some very interesting things. So keep an eye on your uh, morning skies. And if you're getting up early for any reason whatsoever, wander outside, have a look, and you'll see something beautiful. Fantastic, Ian. Do you have a tangent for us for this episode? The tangent was based around opportunity. This plucky little rover that lasted 14 years in a mission that should have taken only 90 days. So there's a surprising number of cartoons that come out. You may be familiar with XKCD. XKCD is a cartoonist who does a lot of science-based cartoons. He's famous for the original Spirit cartoon when Spirit got stuck and ceased functioning. He drew a cartoon around that, which impacted a lot of people. Yep. We are placing our projections and our feelings of what it is to be an explorer lost and alone onto these robots. And he did a similar cartoon with Opportunity. When Opportunity stopped operating, uh, he did a marvellous cartoon about how Opportunity has led people uh, across a vast world that we've had no understanding of. There's a whole range of robotic spacecraft we care about. Probably the first of these spacecraft was Hayabusa, the original Hayabusa. Their Hayabusa, you may remember, uh, was the asteroid sample return mission by JAXA, the authority. And uh, it suffered uh, a major failure going to the asteroid, but they were able to get it there by fiddling with what remaining fuel they had and doing these large looping orbits. So Hayabusa limped into in, into orbit around its, its target asteroid, uh, managed to get some samples, and then went back uh, to Earth again. In the typical Japanese way, Hayabusa became a huge anime girl. And this, I think, started the trend. Then there was Rosetta, which was deliberately cartoonified. But it, it, in many ways, it didn't take off until Philae. And the, the, the signature event there was when uh, uh, Philae went missing after, uh, after its um, uh, touchdown. Yep. And, the ser- and the search for Philae and... Uh, it's shot, it sent back its first images and then they were desperately searching for it and trying to see if it had survived the cold. And then the cartoon images of Philae and Rosetta struck it in a way that the, the uh, simple, uh, here's a cartoon of a spacecraft to, uh, to make it easier to uh, talk to kids about it. I should talk to Dr. Space Junk about this, about, about the cartoonifying of our spacecraft and why some missions get this really heavy investment in them, and some missions don't. And some missions are sort of in between, like New Horizons. Indeed, Ian. Well, thank you very much, Ian. There's going to be a lot more stories we'll be telling here on Astrophys. 
And we'll also recommend that our listeners go and read what you put up every week or every fortnight on Astroblog to tell people what's up in the night sky. Thank you, Ian. It was a pleasure. It was a pleasure. Good night. Bye. And here is the Astrophys News. An international team of more than 200 astronomers from 18 countries has published the first phase of a major new sky survey at unprecedented sensitivity using the low-frequency array, the LOFAR telescope. The instrument is based on an interferometric array of radio telescopes using about 20,000 small antennas based mainly in the Netherlands but with additional stations in Germany, and one each in Great Britain, France, Sweden and Ireland. The survey reveals hundreds of thousands of previously undetected galaxies, shedding new light on many research areas, including the physics of black holes and how clusters of galaxies evolve. A special issue of the scientific journal Astronomy and Astrophysics is dedicated to the first 26 research papers describing the survey and its first results. Radio astronomy reveals processes in the universe that we cannot see with optical instruments. In this first part of the sky survey, LOFAR observed a quarter of the northern hemisphere at low radio frequencies, and at this point, approximately 10% of that data is now being made public. It maps 300,000 sources, almost all of which are galaxies in a distant universe. Their radio signals had travelled billions of light years before reaching Earth. Professor Hubert Gering from Leiden University and principal investigator of the surveys team said, If we take a radio telescope and look up at the sky, we see mainly emission from the immediate environment of massive black holes. With LOFAR, we hope to answer the fascinating question, where do those black holes come from? What we do know is that black holes are pretty messy eaters. When gas falls into them, they emit jets of material that can be seen at radio wavelengths. Another example of a stunning pace of astrophysics research using huge amounts of data and huge teams of scientists. Well done, Astron, and the international team involved. Next up, a short item for our Aussies and our international audience. Here's a great post from the CSIRO Twitter feed about four hours ago. We're so proud CSIRO will march in this year's Sydney Mardi Gras for the first time. Diversity is in our DNA, and it's only through an inclusive and diverse culture that we can imagine invent and innovate solutions to Australia's greatest challenges. Good on you, CSIRO. And to finish up, here's a great story from Andrew Masterton from Cosmos magazine. Your new daily fix, the Martian weather forecast. NASA makes the InSight lander's meteorological data freely available. Daily weather details are a necessity for many people, and an obsession for many more. And now the morning check of conditions for places near and distant is set to become just that little bit more interesting or daft, depending on your point of view. 
as well as looking at the predicted temperatures for your hometown, the city in which your daughter lives, your mum's place or that great village in France you visited on holiday last year, you can now include Mars in your daily survey. As well as temperature range, the Mars Weather Service also provides hourly updates on atmospheric pressure and wind speed. The InSight lander is close to the Martian equator, just north of the equator, so it's experiencing Martian winter, explains Don Banfield from Cornell University in the US, the person in charge of the craft's meteorological equipment. Winter is the planet's storm season. However, Banfield says it's unlikely that the lander will be damaged by inclement weather. Taking reading from the InSight lander, the NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory has launched a weather service specific to the Elysium Planitia, the area where InSight has set up camp and, incidentally, a major location for Mark Watney's Mars adventures. The data, it must be said, unlike the numbers for that cute place in France, are unlikely to prompt thoughts of a quick trip to enjoy the sun. At the time of writing, InSight was suffering through a day in which the minimum temperature was predicted to be minus 95 degrees Celsius, increasing to a not-quite-balmy max of minus 17. The Red Planet weather forecasts can be found at tinyurlcom forward slash crazymarsweather, all lowercase, all one word. Now here's an important announcement to finish up with. If you would like us to interview someone from your favourite radio or optical telescope, or you'd like us to delve a little deeper into your current fascinating topic or cosmic phenomena, get in touch and we'll do our best to get it covered in a future episode. Drop us a line on Twitter, that's at astrophys, A-S-T-R-O-P-H-I-Z, or join our Astrophys Facebook group. Or you can leave a comment on the Astrophys website. It comes up as number one if you Google the word Astrophys. Or you can get in touch with me directly via email at oscience2006 at gmail.com. Step outside and look uppity. We'll see you in two weeks. Ready now,